As a startup founder, you're kind of building your business for three different people. You're building your business for your customers, you're building your business for potential investors, and you're building your business for potential acquirers. And when I look at potential acquirers, because you know, I think a lot of startup founders like to talk about IPOs and all that, but 98% of startup exits are M&A, they're not IPOs. And so being realistic about how a business exits, I have to set up my company in a way that's attractive for an American company to buy it. Having documentation, communication, and everyone communicating in English makes it a whole lot easier to fit and plug into any other company that's there. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting-edge technology, startup unicorns, and connections to the world. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from Asianometry, and I'm here with Clayton, the founder and CEO of CreatorDB. Clayton, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How's the week going so far? Going well so far. Innovex is this week, which is exciting. We got a booth there. Some of my team is there manning the stage and trying to chat to as many people as we can. What is Innovex, like for our viewers? Yeah, so Innovex is sort of a subsection of the large tech conference that goes on here, Computex. And so within Computex, there's sort of a the subsection that's more focused on startups. And most of the startups are local, and we got our booth there either being connected through government organizations like the Taiwan Tech Arena or Startup accelerators, like 500 startups. And so I think it's just kind of a showcase of up and coming or more startup style companies that are operating domestically. I just came from there. Are you manning the booth yourself? I'll be stopping by, but fortunately doing a lot of running around this week. So I don't think I'll have too much time to explore the floor. <laughs> yeah, that's regrettable. So tell me, what does CreatorDB do? Like, what's your business about? Yeah, so we are what I like to say a data analytics company. We focus in marketing technology, specifically for influencer marketing, generally with the creator economy. The idea is that a lot of people, when they're looking at hiring influencers for their marketing campaigns, they make a lot of either uninformed decisions, or even if the decisions are informed, they're done without a ton of intelligence backing it up. So our position is kind of acting like a Nielsen for the creator economy. But instead of looking at 200 TV channels, we're looking at 3.5 million creators across YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. So our job is to collect, analyze all this data to help people be finding the best possible influencers for their marketing campaigns. And then what kind of like data points are kind of significant for like your customers, I guess, who I guess are the marketers, right? Yeah. So it can be everything from as simple as being able to easily filter by language, you know, just making it more convenient to do discovery to more complex analytics, like doing sentiment analysis of comment sections to see how people are reacting to individual pieces. So there's quite a range and we go pretty deep into technology, especially around natural language processing. So looking at sort of the subsection of AI, trying to train computers and technology to be analyzing text, analyzing content that's fed into it, and coming out with some type of label or output. So where we see this specifically is kind of in a couple of cases, most predominantly with content categorization. So with content categorization, it can be really challenging to be finding a large number of influencers that are talking about specific topics. Because if you go through search engines built in on social media sites, you'll typically be looped through the same three to 10 large creators, especially once you start clicking on contents, because the algorithm will feed you more and more from what you've already engaged with. So if you're trying to get to the scale of identifying hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of influencers, it can be really tedious or near impossible to do through the platform. So having strong content categorization allows for really easy identification of any creators focusing on a specific niche. I'd say that's some of our strong deep tech. And we also look at other stuff like being able to understand which brands are sponsoring and are already working with creators. So being able to process everything from descriptions and links to then associated with brand partnerships. That way we can know which brands creators are working with, which brands are spending a decent amount of money. But from an advertiser's perspective, it also delivers really interesting metrics in the way where we can compare how a creator might be performing with their standard videos versus sponsored content. Because, you know, sometimes there's a concern that creators might be putting less effort into sponsored content or that the sponsored content isn't a good fit for their audience or they're not reacting positively for that. So we can look at sort of the difference in performance from content falling into those two categories as well as the sentiment analysis comparatively versus their other content. What do you think makes for like a really good piece of sponsored content that really hits with the audience? The best pieces of sponsored content are the ones where the creator have the most creative freedom. Because 
I think we've all seen pieces of content or posts online that just follow the exact same script. They're very clearly an ad, and it's fine for things to be an ad, but I think that the ad in it of itself should be content. And when the ad itself is content, so it either maintains the comedic tone, it ties in with the rest of the video, and it's not just a full stop break from the content, but it's sort of a refreshing, could be humorous, could be interesting. It has to come through still with the creator's voice. That's what we end up finding the most effective. And so I think in that way, it kind of requires two things. It requires one, the product that they're promoting to be relevant to the content which is being discussed in one way or another, or at least having a strong overlap with the audience. And as well as it also requires the creator to put in a decent amount of effort to try to figure out how to creatively intertwine the ad read with their standard content. I've had that challenge too, doing a sponsor read for a particular video or something like that. It does seem to work better if you, uh, I guess they really do mean it when they say integration. It's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, it's tough to do. And especially when, you know, you have creators that are working with sponsors on almost a weekly basis or even more frequently, it can take up a lot of creative juices because you still have to balance it with being genuine. You know, I think that part of the reason why we find the creator economy so interesting as an advertising solution is because there's much higher level of trust between the audience and the content producer because things are generally more genuine. And so maintaining that genuine voice is still really critical. Yeah, that's the tough part. What is genuine? Can it really be genuine if you're getting paid for it? I think so. I think that it's not unrealistic for audiences to be very understanding that if this is somebody's profession, it has to be monetizable. And I think that there's a huge range of how people can do monetization while maintaining being genuine. You know, it's not just in the way that the ad is integrated. It has to do with what companies does the creator choose to work with or not work with? Do they actually care about what the product is? And are they transparent? Are they transparent about the benefits or the downsides? Or, you know, I think that things that lose a lot of trust is when it's not really clear if a product is being sponsored or not. We see it happen somewhat frequently, even though in a lot of countries it's actually illegal for that to not be labeled. But since there's so much content, it's very hard for regulatory bodies to stay on top of it. And so I think that if you look at specific spaces like the crypto space, I think there's a low level of trust between advertisers and audience members. And so when you're going into that space, I think it's very important to be like talking to creators and actually getting them on board with the product vision so it comes off much more genuine. The, the best collaborations are ones where the creator themselves sees the value and can benefit from the value of the products that they're promoting. That can't always be the case, but those are end up being the best type of integrations. How did you end up coming to this current business model of CreatorDB? Did it always start out like that or did you evolve your way towards it? Like, What's the kind of the journey there? So the original thesis for the company was basically money ball for influencers. It was how can you take a look quantitatively at the performance of all these different creators to match it with predictive analysis. So match it from, can I draw a pattern between how this person grows, the content topic that they have, the audience makeup that they have? Can I tie that to a prediction for the return on value for potential clients? And when we were first starting, we were very focused on gaming for maybe the first six months. So we've been doing this for around three and a half years. And the first six months was very much just kind of toying around, playing with it, you know, working after our day jobs, trying to figure out if this was something that was viable or not. But what we quickly found is that there's a ton of businesses in this space, even beyond gaming, that have a lot of needs. And so we broadened our scope to kind of be covering any digital goods, e-commerce, gaming. Those are the biggest types of clients that we typically work with, but also CPG, tourism, that and the likes. And so it has evolved more and more. Initially, the vision of the company was to be a pure software platform that allowed for sort of discovery. And what we built is basically a search engine for influencers. And it works well and it, it does its job. But what we ended up seeing in the market is it wasn't quite, it didn't really ever get to product market fit. And 
what we ended up doing was pivoting to having sort of agency-based services because after having dozens, maybe close to 100 calls with potential customers and getting user feedback, it was the data's great, the searching's great. I don't want to use one tool for searching and discovery and other tool for everything else in my campaign. And we found more success when it came to brands that want to bring their entire influencer marketing strategy out to us. They want to outsource the whole thing because internally we end up using all of our own technology to be identifying the best creators for them. And when we're delivering that, it's sort of the whole end-to-end spectrum that they would get from other agencies. But with us, we're much more performance marketing ROI driven. And now we're kind of going full circle and investing a lot more back into our technology platform to try to make a lot of the internal tools we've built more self-service for SMBs. So now you're kind of envisioning there would be a self-serve kind of like a marketing platform or a marketing tool or agency for SMBs, but then there's also like a higher value service where someone's actually helping to manage your campaign or run the campaign, right? Yeah, that's kind of the goal because we want to make sure we can serve both customers that want to outsource the whole project or they have internal teams that are competent in running these types of campaigns but need analytical assistance. But wouldn't the marketing agency part of that be kind of a more value add? Like why SMBs, maybe there's a lot more of them, but they probably have not that much money, right, in the influencer market. Like why, why decide to make this change to target SMBs? You know, we're looking at people who are like 50000 to a $1 million a year in annual budget for marketing. So kind of the upper end of SMBs. And I think right now, especially in the West, because most of our customers are actually foreign, about 98, 99% of our revenue comes from the US and Europe. And with that being the case, I'm looking much more at the competitive landscape out there. And what I'm seeing is that there are a lot of options to be working with, but a lot of people with budgets in the range I described kind of get priced out of the solutions. So there are very expensive SaaS platforms that are available. So like software platforms that will be managing the campaigns, but typically they're being asked to pay for implementation fees, consulting fees, and it goes well into six figures a year just for the software system. And if you're working with agencies, then there's just a premium on everything that you're doing. And so the kind of the idea is if we're able to help people who don't have experience or people who do have experience, but want to run something more scalable, allow it to run it on their own and it ends up being much more viable in terms of their budgets, then we have, you know, a full service platform in which they can be able to do it. So that's really the product mission that we're on for the next 12, 18 months. So kind of walk us through for those who are not familiar, like what does this small kind of influencer campaign entail? Like, what does that mean? Is it just a bunch of emails going back and forth? Is there more involvement on the client side or on the influencer side? Like, how does that sort of work? So many more emails than you could ever imagine. (laughs) But if we take it from like a brand's perspective, so let's remove sort of what my company does or what any other agency or software tool might do and look at sort of the basic phases of how you operate an influencer marketing campaign. So kind of the first thing to do is look at the products that you're trying to sell. Do you have an understanding of what that typical target audience looks like? Do you have an idea of what might be successful? And what you do from there is like, all right, well, Let's say I have three keywords associated with my product. I go and I look for influencers that cover these topic areas. I go through their pages to try to find their contact information and I reach out for them asking for a quote. Then go back and negotiate. You send a creative brief once things are agreed and after upload, you send payment. So that's a standard way of doing it manually. And what kind of a company like mine steps in to try to do is we look at the initial setup of the target audience typically that that product might see. And what we'll do is we'll go out and use algorithms essentially to find people who might be an ideal candidate. Or one thing that we'll also do is we'll look at competitors that exist in the market. So if there's competitors that exist in the market who are working with influencers, we look at their data in our own data set and a very strong signal uh, that we can see externally of whether an influencer was good ROI for a brand or not is whether they got their contract renewed. So if they did three videos with the sponsor or six videos with the sponsor, typically that means that's a stronger ROI creator. And so looking at their competitors, which creators got repeat deals, and then finding the patterns between those competitors to give us kind of a jumpstart of what might be predicting success in working with a particular influencer for this new brand. Then if we want to work with, let's say, 10 influencers, we might reach out to 
150 to 200. And since we're based on our database, we can do that scale quite easily. You know, it's just a few moments to get that level. And we go out, we email is the standard form of contact in the space, and we'll go back and forth negotiating. And after we found sort of what we thought to be the top 10 highest quality deals based on price to expected performance, then we take them back to the client. The client will say, yes, I like this one. Yes, I like this one. No, I don't like this one. Yes, I like this one. Yes, I like this one. And for the ones that they say yes to, we proceed on. We draft up contracts. We handle payments, even translations. So for some of our larger clients, one of the services we provide is basically cross-border entry. So if you've ever seen Surfshark on YouTube in Taiwan or anywhere around Asia, they're our customer and we do the majority of their business in Asia for them. And what we do for them is beyond sort of that discovery and management system and analytics, it's helping them translate content, helping them identify local trends and be able to be integrated more locally with the scene in the community there. So there are different levels of complexity that can be brought to an influencer campaign and sort of what I've been seeing is that while influencer campaigns can be run in a way that's manual and in a way that is, you know, a bit simpler and doesn't have all these added complexities of analytics, it's it's possible to run those campaigns. But when people are looking at running those campaigns and they're looking at the results, their results might not be as good as it would be if they're using a lot more analytics to base their decisions on. But getting those analytics is very expensive or it's complicated. So really the mission we're trying to bring is making it as easy as possible for people to be making those intelligent decisions along the way. So like this, this new SMB tool isn't necessarily providing some of the discovery of trying to say, hey, look, these are the influencers we think you want to reach out to, but you're not going to help out reach out to them or anything like that. No, it's allowing it to be full self-service. There's lots of features and things that we're planning, but it's basically trying to make it as easy as possible to run complex campaigns without any interaction from my team. Because as a founder, I have to think about what we do well and what we do well that's scalable. And a model like that is, of course, much more scalable because it doesn't require human interaction for my team. It requires setup and engineering and complex engineering, but having 10 customers takes up as much of our time as having one customer, right? And in that type of scenario, I think that that's also what we're trying to achieve in terms of reaching additional levels of scalability in the future. It does definitely feel like marketing agency approach, probably very profitable, probably makes it a little more challenging to scale to like 100 customers or 1,000 customers. Yeah, it is definitely more difficult. The space we kind of fall into is I call us tech-enabled services. So, you know, it's somewhere between an, a pure agency play and a pure software play where a lot of the internal tasks have different forms of automation and tools that we've built but it still has a human element that while it's going very well for us right now and it won't be disregarded as a product, to find that thing for us that is fully scalable is what we're investing a lot of our resources into right now. These internal tools that you build, are these things that are built to kind of serve the need at the time and then they eventually evolve to become more sophisticated? Yeah, kind of. I think it's very startup that they kind of start as hacked together tools to make day-by-day -day life easier. But eventually they became a very main part of how a couple dozen people do their job every day. And they're now being sort of retooled for that self-service uh, platform. And I mean, it's a combination of APIs, internal tools that we built ourselves, third-party tools that we incorporate with our first-party data. And we were at a point where the way that we were managing deals was post-it notes on a wall. And we uh, missed a deadline with a deal because one of the post-its fell off the wall behind a desk. <laughs> we didn't see it. Uh, and that's why I was like, all right, you know, time to upgrade some systems. <laughs> and now that we have a ton of tools between like email automation, analytical automation, CRMs, complex accounting and business intelligence that allow us to not only understand what's going on internally, but help our clients understand what's going on in terms of their results in analytics so they can be investing into the areas which are making them the most money. Are these all integrated into one single platform or are they all like in their own part or their own particular silo? I mean, I would call it a stack. I mean, they communicate, they interact with each other, but they're still very much kind of their own tools in and of themselves. So that's part of also why we want to be pushing towards this upgraded platform because it'll also be convenient for us for all of the tools to be in one place and communicating in harmony. I'm curious because you collected all this data and you collected all this, essentially this information about these different influencers across very different platforms and all that. Can you envision like any other uses for this data or like any other things that might add value for your customers, like other than discovery, other than outreach and stuff like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are kind of in the POC stage when it comes to doing sort of industry reports and consumer behavior reports. You know, we have 3.5 million creators that we're collecting data on on a consistent basis, and it ends up being close to 5 billion data points on a daily basis. It's an extreme amount of data. And so looking at all of this, even going beyond selection for advertising and going beyond advertising in general. So one of the POCs we have in place right now is we are trying to understand trends in the American real estate housing market and looking at realtors' social media page and looking at changes in interactions with their pages versus home purchasing behavior and mapping a correlation between a 45-day in the future home purchasing behavior based on how users are interacting with social pages. So there's a lot that can be done. That's kind of why I say in the beginning, we work on marketing tech and we work on influencers, but at the core, we're a data analytics company. Did that thing just came up because you were just like curious? Or did you notice something like a signal or have, and kind of chase that tail? I think it was kind of like, oh, if we can do this, then we might be able to do that. Let's see if we can do that. It was sort of a curiosity. And it was a curiosity that got to the point of, you know what, maybe this is worth exploring. Maybe this is worth us figuring out uh, what we can be doing in this space. And so, you know, like you can look at firms that have these as sort of standalone products like McKinsey putting out industry reports or something of that like. Having access to this level of social media data, I think we've just only been been able to scratch the surface of how it's productized. So when I look at kind of how we're set up is I see the database at its core, all the analytics we have as the really valuable asset that we're sitting on and that everything we're doing on top of it right now for revenue generation is a specific productization of that data. But at the core, there's more and more productizations that we can be trying, that we can be pushing for to get more and more value out of it for not even necessarily our current customers, but whole different customer lines. What are the resources do you have to invest to make sure that it's like, stays up to date or stays accurate? Like, it must be pretty difficult, right? It's a lot of servers, but luckily I have a fantastic VP of engineering who has built a lot of these systems. And so the monthly server costs that we have is extremely reasonable. I was actually in a conversation with a venture capitalist who didn't believe my numbers when I was telling them how expensive it was on a monthly basis. They thought it was no way. It was way too low. So I had to do a breakdown of the math for him of how it actually got to those monthly costs. But it's more of a technical challenge than an expense. Because, you know, when you collect data the way that we do, any changes to the platforms, so any changes to YouTube, any changes to Instagram, any changes to TikTok is something we have to immediately remedy. So we're kind of stuck in a place of constant vigilance. And that was much more of a struggle for us in the beginning. But after we've gone through three and a half years of seeing how the platforms modify and change and their code gets slightly altered, we often find that it's pretty easy to stay up to date because we've noticed the patterns of how things change and we're able to stay pretty current. So, you know, if all of a sudden the UI or the layout or how data is displayed changes within one of the certain platforms, we can usually get it back up and on within a day or two. Do you just cover like those social platforms, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok? Or do you cover like websites or the email newsletters like Substack's big, right? Like do you cover those guys too? Right now we're focused on the social medias and we're probably going to be trying to branch into more of the social medias uh, and trying to get that fully locked down before we go on and exploring because you know, like I said, the current productization that's working well for us right now is in influencer advertising, influencer marketing. And so we want to be making sure we're adding more and more value to side of sort of our bread and butter type of products uh, before we're going out and expanding to anything beyond that. But it's definitely an area that is relevant. And it's an area which, you know, I believe that a lot of the customers that are going through us now specifically for influencers will also have interest in those areas. A lot of these creators, like they must have multiple different social media profiles across different platforms. Is it kind of hard to kind of tie between all that same guy across different areas? That's actually something we kind of figured out in our algorithm. So we mesh everyone's social page into one. So if they have a TikTok and Instagram and a YouTube, we kind of mesh that into a single profile. And we're able to do that based on linking between the platforms, based on name similarity, and a few other systems that kind of allow us to have a high level of confidence that both these channels belong to the same individual. And that's pretty useful because, you know, a lot of campaigns don't only want to do one specific thing. So they might say, all right, we want you to do a 90 second YouTube integration about our products, 
And when the video goes up, we want you to make an Instagram story that also links back to our page. And so if you're trying to filter through and find those people, you might say, all right, I, I want a creator who's in Taiwan, who speaks Chinese, who makes video gaming content, whose audience is predominantly male, who's growing quickly, who I have their contact for, who also has an Instagram page that has at least 25,000 followers. All right, show me everyone in the world who meets that criteria. So that's the type of thing that our system provides. So something interesting is that like you have larger creators, they might have more reach, but maybe they'll charge a lot more, right? The celebrity tax. Yeah, the celebrities, right? Uh, but then you may have the kind of the medium or smaller influencers, they might be a little more willing to work for slightly less, but maybe their reach isn't so good. Based on your experiences, like what's kind of the better ROI? Like, is it worth to just pay whatever it takes to get that really big influencer? Or like, do you think it's kind of better spreading it out across a bunch of little influencers? It does depend. It depends on what the KPI for the campaign is. So if it's a branding campaign, you'll see brands very happy to pay the higher fee for the large creators. If you're talking about performance marketing, which is what we tend to focus more on, we work with a lot of medium creators. I would say creators in the range of 50,000 to 250,000 average views on YouTube and same for impressions across the other platforms. Uh, because what we find is there's actually uh, an adverse relationship between the size of your following and the engagement rate that you have. And so the percentage of your audience that is engaging with the post, let's say liking, commenting, sharing versus the total number of impressions, the percentage ratio of that goes down linearly with the increase in size of total followers that you have. And so what you end up doing is, let's say a creator with a million views and a creator with 100,000 views, let's say they both charge 25 CPM. So they both charge 25 US dollars per thousand views that they get. And if that is the cost is even there, it's almost always better to be going with the medium creator because their engagement rate statistically is much more likely to be higher than the large creators. Of course, there's examples where that doesn't exactly line up. But in terms of building overall strategy, you can't only be thinking about pricing in terms of followers or pricing in terms of views, but looking at pricing in terms of engagement and in terms of what percentage of the overall audience even meets your campaign's target audience. So when you're looking at doing something like predicting ROI, there is a ton of variables that go into it. So it's like maybe this creator is a lot cheaper, but they only have 50% of my target audience. 50% of their audience isn't within my target. But this creator is 30% more expensive, but they have 90% of their audiences within my TA. Actually, it's better to go to the second one. And so when you're making decisions around how much to spend, who to go with, it ends up being a lot more complex than size, total cost, or even cost per view, or even cost per engagement. Because yeah, looking at the breakdown of demographics, and also you can be looking at things like how likely is a post to go viral. So you can look at the volatility of views that a certain creator has. And maybe some companies prefer creators that have a lot of stable views. Maybe some brands want to gamble and uh, work with a creator that has a few viral videos, but their average is much lower. So th there's a ton of factors that go into this. And that's why I think that when a lot of brands are making decisions around their influencers, they're definitely taking some of this into account. But unless you're working with an automatic system that is collecting and constantly analyzing these metrics, it can be very difficult for a human to keep track of all these different performance metrics let alone use them for decision making. I didn't know the linear thing, like the larger your audience is, the less linear. It kind of makes sense, I guess. Is yeah. that the same across all the platforms? All platforms. So it's like, even if you're TikTok or it's Instagram or even if Line or something, like it's the same way. Mm, TikTok gets a little bit more chaotic just because of their content delivery system being predominantly the For You page as opposed to your following page. But the trend is consistent across all platforms. And it can be a really dramatic difference. Like somebody with... Uh, let's say 10K average views on average will have three times higher engagement rate than someone with a million average. It can be a very dramatic difference between them. And so there's a lot of cases where if you have one creator or five small creators, you know, one plus one is greater than two. And a lot of the cases when you're kind of putting together smaller and medium creators for a campaign, we typically recommend a mix to be achieving multiple things at the same time. But the whole idea of sort of why the thesis was Moneyball, it's ignoring those celebrity taxes. It's ignoring everything else that's going on 
accept how their specific metrics feed into return on investment. So it's a specific form of economics known as sabermetrics. And sabermetrics is this sort of econometrics type of field that focuses on like true results. It's what Billy Bean applied when he was building the Oakland A's. So when you're pitching this to kind of a performance marketer, the performance marketer probably won't care about any of that. They only care about the ROI, right? How do you kind of get that sort of approach over to them to make them buy? Because they probably may have their own biases or their own kind of concerns. And like, how do you get them to work with you and kind of buy in on what you're doing? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of noise in the space because I think that for a lot of people, it is kind of a low effort. You know, there's a very low bar to get started in terms of, you know, starting up a two, three person agency with your buddies and just trying to win over a few clients and doing freelance work versus, you know, sophisticated analysis to be doing predictions on ROI. Those are two very different levels that end up potentially looking the same when you're marketing your business. What I think people appreciate is that because we have the software products publicly open and available, people can go in and see the type of data that we're working with. They can see the type of data that we're using to be making our own decisions. And so I find that it's much easier to show than convince. And so taking them through like, these are the data points that we typically analyze. This is what we'll present to you during the process of creator selection. And, you know, when we're making decisions internally, these are usually the main variables that we're looking at. This is how we find the people and develop patterns for the creators that are likely to perform well. And then it's great if they have historical data and they've worked with influencers in the past because that gets us sort of a starting point. And, but even if they don't, we kind of take that strategy that I was mentioning before of looking at competitors and what was working well for them. So it's kind of like just trying to show evidence of what we're doing because I think a lot of people like to talk about AI. A lot of people like to talk about analytics and data for decision making. But I think when you can put the data in front of them, when I can share my screen and actually show them the Excel sheets, the SQL, the platform that we're looking at and pulling all the data from to be making decisions on their behalf, I think that's what ends up doing a lot of the convincing. I'm actually kind of curious, like if you were to stack rank those social media networks, which are kind of the ones that are most with creators are most in demand. And if it's like industry based, I'm going to say YouTube because YouTube is consistent. YouTube is good ROI. We do our most most of our business on YouTube and when we're running into a new campaign and they're looking for us for suggestions of what to do, 80 or 90% of the time, the strategy is predominantly YouTube. Because if you think about it, if we're looking at like Instagram, TikTok, or anything that has a little bit shorter form of content, if you think about it in terms of seconds of attention. So if you have an Instagram post, what is the maximum number second of, of attention you could get from a user? It'd be someone looking at a post, zooming in, liking and commenting. That is the dream situation that a user can have, but that still is maximum, let's call it five to eight seconds of attention. And when you're talking about TikTok, you know, I think that there's ways to do it creatively. But I think that one of the areas that's interesting with TikTok in particular, and when we're looking in the West more so than domestically here, you have to be making good content. Standard content plus an ad, that format doesn't work as well on TikTok. And so it is much more creative intensive and that can do great. And it presents a ton of opportunities for small businesses to have low cost, high impact type of promotions. But when you're looking at consistent performance marketing ROI, it's YouTube. It's YouTube all the way. TikTok is so random. Like you'll have a post that does like a thousand, another one does like 10 million or something. I think that uh, TikTok does something really well and I've seen other platforms try to emulate after it's been rising, especially during COVID, is that it gives a lot of content a chance. So, you know, when you're scrolling through the For You page, you'll often run into videos that have between 5 and 13 likes, and it will have typically less than 200 views. Because it's essentially deciding, do they want to push up this video in the algorithm? Are people interested enough in this content to try to promote it, be viral? And what's nice about that is it's organic in the way that trial process is pretty agnostic to follower counts. And so follower accounts, you know, you'll naturally be getting a bit more. But I think what's fascinating about platforms like that is that kind of anybody has the opportunity to go viral with any post. And I think that's sort of the excitement that it creates a lot of UGC, user generated content of people wanting to participate and actually be uploading to the platform. And I think that a lot of platforms do that at the beginning of their life cycle. And when you're looking at social media platforms, I think that that's one of the most attractive things about a new platform, except 
there's oftentimes the change once monetization becomes a higher priority of the platform where they kind of lose out on that aspect because they want to feed creators that they have higher confidence in that you'll keep watching. So they'll feed you more of their own recommendations and things of that light of sort of higher quality or more consistent creators. And it can be harder and harder for new creators to come up. We haven't really seen that change yet with TikTok, which is interesting because they've probably lasted the longest without making a dramatic shift in this way. But I think we've seen this shift in every other platform that is big and out there, whether it be Twitch or YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. It's much harder to start and get viral as a new creator. But I do like that TikTok has kind of pressured Instagram and YouTube into bringing that back a little bit. So now, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but in the last two years, when you're looking at a YouTube video, typically the third or fourth video that's recommended on the right will have less than 250 views. And so that wasn't something that was done between like 2015 and 2020. And while they didn't publicly announce why, I'm pretty sure it's the pressure from Instagram. They're trying to put this content out. And now Instagram is doing the same thing when it comes to Reels. So posts are still pretty locked up and traditional in the way of, you know, the big get bigger and it's very hard for a new person to crack it. Of course, it's still possible, but it's not as easy as a platform like Instagram. But Reels are now this huge opportunity that they're trying to push for people to be building up follower counts. But then the question at the end of the day becomes how important are followers versus engaged audience? Nothing. <laughs> I say it as a YouTuber. I mean, nothing. <laughs> yeah. I think that we've seen more and more platforms later in their life cycle. Followers become much more an indication of how long you've been on the platform as yes. opposed to how popular you are at any given moment. I think the thing with TikTok from a creator's perspective is that every post you make is incredibly stressful because you have to decide that this is a post you want to invest in and like this is going to be a hit and it has to be hit and there's no other way that you can't lean on like a follower count it's totally on the basis of the content itself i think that's to make it less stressful because you know i get the idea that like you know everyone you're kind of thrown into the wind in seeing what's going to pick up but i think that they also discriminate less against the idea of having 100 failed attempts and so i think that there's some people who are taking much more of a volume strategy to tiktok you know when you see the people who are popping off and are having consistent viral content they're uploading two to four times a day. Really? Yeah. And uh, it's working well. And I mean, like the content isn't even that relatively different. Like if you go through the page, you can see three videos with a certain outfit, three videos with another certain outfit, and it can be clear that they, they were filmed at the same time and they're uploaded pretty similarly. And this is a bit different to YouTube because, you know, I think when you're talking about YouTube, I think it is easier to get one video with a million views than 10 videos with 100,000 views. And this is something that you see echoed by a lot of sort of the gurus on YouTube, whether it be Mr. Beast or like Colin and Samir or the other people who are kind of known in the industry for giving their insights because it's easier to have one viral hit than it is to build a consistent core audience. Building a consistent core audience is the most challenging part of any social media, but that is probably one of the most important things that have to be done when you're looking at being a creator, trying to treat it more professionally and trying to go into monetization efforts, whether it be advertising or selling your own brand or product or merchandising or anything along that way. Core audience is really what it's reliant on as opposed to singular viral content. How do you track and do you even see this happen? Do you see audiences change over time for a particular creator? Because I've seen a lot of creators on YouTube. They start out a certain way. They make certain type of videos that get their first wave of fame. And then maybe they do well enough, like they a bunch of programming videos, they're a programmer or something. They do a bunch of programming tutorials, but then they quit their job because, you know, now they're a YouTuber and then they just make lifestyle videos. Obviously, there's two different kind of eras of this creator. Like, how do you track that? And how do you, are these even, even possible to track? Sure. I mean, you can first be looking at stuff like our, what our natural language processing looks at in terms of categorization, like what the content is actually about. You can kind of be tracking those changes. I think that changing as a creator is important and necessary to a long-term healthy online career because what you have to do is you either have to keep your core audience interested by enough new twists, enough new interesting pieces of content that's related to the core of what you do, keep them coming back. Or if they're moving on, you have to have a consistent attraction to new audience members. And with personality style content, it's a lot easier to wrap onto core audience members. 
there's kind of two types of content creators. Content creators that at the core, the content is about them or at the core of the content is about what they're talking about. And so when it's about more of the content itself, so hobby channels, tutorials, you know, all that type of thing, it's more evergreen for sure. And I think a lot of people forget that YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world. And that's actually one of the biggest motivations behind Google's original acquisition. And when it comes to that, the evergreen content can perform quite well. And it can build up a number of passive people always coming in and always supporting through search. But what a lot of people end up doing is having more personality or individual-based content because regardless of what you're talking about, your audience is watching it for you. The audience is watching it for that particular creator. And when that's the case, pivoting becomes much less risky. So I think a very common example of this is in gaming creators when gaming creators are very focused on a certain game. Maybe they're the best player at a certain game, and so people watch them because they're the best. But if that game goes out of style, so does that creator. But if they end up shifting their content a bit more to being more personality-based, then if they're playing different games, you know, maybe a percentage of their audience is still coming over and being consistent. If you dive too far into particular content niches, you're kind of at the mercy of how popular that content niche is in general. Yeah, I see. There's like a lot of the Minecraft creators, right? Like they really bet their career on Minecraft. and Yeah, huge ups and downs. You know, there was a revival during COVID and some people have remained consistent, but a lot of the medium creators are struggling more. It happens with any trend. And so it's really it depends on the creator. It depends on the creator of whether they are, want to be focused on a specific area or whether they care much more about just amassing larger audiences. Like, what is the priority for them? If, you know, a creator is happy to be a larger creator in a smaller niche versus being a more medium-sized creator in general and maybe not having a niche specifically tied to them, I think that that's kind of a decision that the creator has to make. And it's a balance because it's hard to argue that one is better or worse for monetization. I would say that making that transition to a personality is higher risk but it's sort of higher ceiling. Whereas if you are a more dominant player in a specific niche, doing monetization efforts in that niche that include any sort of outside products that are relevant to it, you know, if it's video essay content, for example, doing educational classes that people are interested in, if it ends up being hobbyist content, opening a store related to that hobby and selling your own brand for different items that are related to that hobby. So there can be really consistent good income streams for people who are medium or large within specific niches. But it's just, I think a creator has to have a very honest look at themselves of why does their audience watch them? What are their strong points as a creator? How was their audience developed? And new audience members that are coming in now, what is attracting them? I say that content creation is a lot like running a startup. Every content creator is their own founder and content is their product. And the users are the audience members. So Where's your product market fit? Do you have scalability in terms of production? Do you have a product that's evergreen that people are continue looking at over over time? What's the lifetime value of your customers? How do you acquire new users? So I think a lot of the questions that startup founders ask themselves are the same ones that content creators should be. And I wrote a book about this. It's all about how do you look at content creation as a career? So I think we've all seen the headlines of like the most popular job that an eight-year-old wants to be growing up is now a YouTuber. Yes, I heard about that. It says something about society, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, because I think that their idea of content creation obviously has more of an immature view. But I think that making a career off of content creation isn't about just becoming a David Dobrik or a PewDiePie or sort of these large LA style influencers. I think some of the best careers in content creation are more around very solid core fan bases at the medium level. And I think that there are so many monetization opportunities that creators miss out on because I think that creators are very focused on their content. It's very reasonable. It's not unreasonable to be very focused on content and on growing audience. And it's a hard expectation to have to have a content creator be focused on and very good at those things while also being a business person. And so kind of what I challenge content creators to think about is how does this turn into a career? If you have, let's say, an average piece of content of yours gets 50,000 viewers. And so you have 50,000 people that you're looking out to, that you're reaching out to on a very regular basis. Why are they coming to you? What are they getting out of you? Is it entertainment? Is it education? Or what, what are they getting out of your content? And in what ways could you extend your own brand and your own content for additional means of monetization? I think we've seen a lot more of this in the last four or five years with Patreon coming up and premium content 
becoming more pervasive. But I think that there's still a lot of opportunities for basically every medium creator can be a small business owner in one way or another, whether their small business is premium content, whether their small business is more personality and brand driven, whether it's more product driven because of the content area that they focus on. I think that content creation is the largest opportunity in human history really, for creating small business owners. It's because you have a built-in distribution and marketing tool that not only is interested in the topic that you're talking about, but has a sense of loyalty and interest to the person who is promoting to them. And I think that when we're looking at what it means to be a professional creator, I think there are many creators out there if they were going through and optimizing their monetization strategy, could build a very solid, very standard income job out of it. And I think the amount of opportunity that's also given to people who are maybe outside of Western society or are in areas that don't have as many career opportunities, this is a really big deal in terms of providing additional opportunity. So I think it's, you know, when eight-year-olds are saying they want to be YouTubers, they're thinking that people with 100 million subs giving away cars. But to me, what a professional content creator ends up being is basically their own small business. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities that maybe get overlooked because options don't get considered. And my goal is to kind of bring more education to creators about how much power they actually hold and how much advantage they have in, you know, the economic competitive landscape, having that built-in marketing distribution and trust. I do want to ask this part. Your company is kind of located in an interesting place. Your company's in Taiwan. Yes. We've been talking about creators all this time. We never even got to the main question. How'd you end up this company in Taiwan? So I've been in Taiwan for a little bit more than five years. I moved here from Shenzhen. And when I was in Shenzhen, I was working for a startup accelerator and then a venture capital company. I wanted to get more into the software space because I was originally an engineer and a product manager, and I kind of missed being more hands-on in the creation. So I had an opportunity to come out to Taiwan to work on some computer vision AI products through another startup. I worked with them for a bit more than two years, and I just kind of realized that there's a ton of opportunity here. I think that when people talk about engineering in Taiwan, there's a lot of focus on like, oh, you know, like engineers cost a lot less here than they do in Silicon Valley. It's like, sure, that's true, but there are countries with cheaper engineers. I think it's about the quality of engineer that is here. Like there's such a high education level. You know, for us, we have a very international office. We have people from 14 different countries in our office here in Taipei. And I think that having that sort of unique environment it attracts a certain personality type. It attracts a certain amount of people and our churn rate is extremely low because I think people like working in that environment. I think that something that's a disadvantage of working in startup hubs like Shenzhen or San Francisco is that you have to constantly be concerned that anybody in your company is going to go leave because they get a better stock option offer from a company two roads down. And since Taiwan's startup scene, I think, is still developing compared to a lot of those other cities, I find that attracting talent here beyond just cost ends up being highly advantageous. And so I think that I've attracted a lot of really strong people to the team who have made all of this possible. The team's about 35 now, and they tend to, to like the working environment. They like playing Super Smash Bros. tourneys. They like going laser tagging in the summer. It's an environment that I think is conducive to attracting a certain type of personality that works well within a startup. Yeah, I've heard of, there's a lot of horror stories about like traditional Taiwanese businesses or just Asian businesses in general. That's just you have a CEO or a chairman who's like a deity and then everything he says goes and then everyone kind of put in that sort of in a terrible situation. Yeah, I do think that working on both sides of the ocean, you see a lot of top heavy corporate structures here where decision making below a certain level is basically irrelevant or not even permitted. So I think that having an environment that is conducive not only to people operating with a level of independence, so it is not allowed for you to be making your own decisions. It's expected of you to be making your own decisions because, you know, at a certain level, what do I know about the day to day operations? There's 35 people. How can I ever have a better opinion? about a lot of the stuff that's going on because I'm missing 
an incredible amount of context. So I kind of see my job as a CEO of like, yeah, getting involved in things that are important, getting my hands, you know, very into important projects. But a lot of the times it's empowering people in getting things out of their way to allow them to do their jobs, you know, hiring smart people, trusting them and getting out of the way, setting a specific vision. So we're all aligned, you know, allowing a level of independence of operation so people can be making decisions quickly because I'm very often a believer of any decision is better than no decision. Uh, and so I often feel uncomfortable and this is not something that I do perfectly. Uh, of course not. This is something that I strive for. And I can tell that I'm in a place where I need to be making adjustments as soon as I feel myself being a bottleneck towards things going forward. And that's sort of the same message that I think we try to impart to all the managers there is if you ever feel yourself being a bottleneck that is in a way that isn't sustainable, you have to be looking at empowering people under you to be making decisions more quickly because deciding and realizing you're wrong is often a lot faster than waiting on people above you. So you talked a little bit about some of the upsides of kind of hiring in Taiwan, especially the part about talent retention, which I actually think a lot of people don't really know. What are sort of kind of the the challenges and kind of the 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 things that make it a little bit harder as opposed to like a San Francisco or like New York City or something like that? The first thing is we only can deal with a subsection of the talent because everyone in the company is buyer trilingual. And so you immediately get a subsection of the talent because of that. And I'm very comfortable with making that decision of making sure that everyone internally speaks English because as a startup founder, you're kind of building your business for three different people. You're building your business for your customers, you're building your business for potential investors, and you're building your business for potential acquirers. And when I look at potential acquirers, because, you know, I think a lot of startup founders like to talk about IPOs and all that, but 98% of startup exits are M&A. They're not IPOs. And so being realistic about how a business exits, I have to set up my company in a way that's attractive for an American company to buy it. Having documentation, communication, and everyone communicating in English makes it a whole lot easier to fit and plug into any other company that's there. But when it comes to hiring, specifically in the software space, because my background and kind of where I cut my teeth is in product management. I think that product management is an area that is still kind of immature in the Taiwanese scene. And I think it's because historically software has not been the focus of a lot of engineering here. It's been much more hardware driven, much more industrial design. And, you know, only recently when we're seeing software companies come up like Apier or Kdot Mobile, that we're seeing more peer software plays going out internationally. And when it comes to making product decisions, I see that a lot of PMs here are come from engineering backgrounds and maybe the people who ended up being PMs are the ones who just had to interface with clients or were even just willing to interface with clients. <laughs> I think that that's an area where if people are looking for an opportunity themselves to be having a strong career in the Taiwanese software space, I think that there is a ton of potential for very high quality PM talent to come in and and really be the visionaries in a lot of products and companies. Those are the positions that I think are hardest to recruit for right now. Is there anything you want to pitch before we close things off? I would say if you're looking to use influencers, try it with us if you want to be doing some analytics. And if you're looking for a place to start a business, Taiwan's a great one. When I was starting this company, I was thinking if I wanted to do it in Shenzhen, wanted to do it in Tokyo, San Francisco, or wherever. But after analyzing everything that was at hand. I think that the advantages of building in Taiwan is something that was quite significant. But while you're building here, the important mindset to have is from day one, you're going international because the domestic market is small. And so build here, but build to go out. Clayton, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. 